I think I'm having an art attack. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack, and I'm your host, Borat. Today, <laughs> we're here with Liz and Dustin. So, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Art Attack. By the way, hey, sometimes when I move the chair, it squeaks and it sounds like I'm farting. I just want to let everybody know out there that if you can hear that, I am not farting, but we have... Yeah, sure that's what you—that's what yeah. you say because but they're not seriously, in the room. two of these chairs in studio here squeak a lot, and if they're not well oiled, then you can hear it, and it sounds like that. So anyway, that's not what's happening. Uh, welcome to another episode of Art Attack. It's going to take like a—I want to do a Dada episode or like a minimalist episode, a minimalist episode, a minimalist episode, a minimalist episode, like that, like that, like that, and just do it really weird, and then all of a sudden we just never get to the episode. We should do that one. Time. Yeah, a number nine. Number nine. Number nine. Number nine. Number nine. Well, you did a Beatles reference. Congratulations. I did, I know. Thank you. So. Welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your host Lizzie Dassin and Justin Boo. If this is the first episode you're listening to, you're probably like, what the hell is he talking about? Because it's just all over the place. How are you, everybody? Yes. <laughs> today, today, we're doing something really fun. Today, we're doing one of my favorite painters in the world. Uh, his name is John Asaro. Now, we were going to go down to visit John. John is had told me, hey, come down to my studio. You can interview me. But I think it's easier this way because I think we should also do that because I think he's one of the most important living artists today. So you have to document that kind of stuff. It's really important to chronicle those people that are important, uh, especially with what I do in the art world because as we talked about this before, before the podcast, people are educating people you know, the school system is educating people in science and technology and math and humanities and language and art is just so just down the down the totem pole of important to these people. Therefore, arts has been buried and forgotten. And I think it's our duty to really educate people on art and the importance of art. Because some people can't think unless they're thinking visually, just like some dancers can't think unless they're moving. You know, I think when I move, just like I think when I draw, I think when I paint. And I think there's a whole group of kids out there in the world who cannot think unless they're moving, unless they're painting, unless they're being theatrical, you know? Now, some people are audio, it's kinesthetic, it's touch, it's feeling, it's whatever. You have There's different ways of learning, but in the school system, there's really, unfortunately, not that many ways that people are teaching. And you as a professor know that more than anything. And I don't want to deviate too much from John Asaro, but I just want to say that that leads back to how important it is to educate people on art and art history, and especially artists that you might not have heard of. And I'm excited about this episode because I hadn't heard of John Asaro until you mentioned him. And I think that How dare you? I know. But <laughs> that's why I need this episode just like all Case. of our other listeners do. And he is a beautiful, figurative painter. He has skills that are just unparalleled. And I think that in contemporary art, 
we, as teachers, we prioritize the stuff that's a little bit subversive Mm -hmm. or sexy or disruptive. Mm -hmm. And that's great. And that is part of the story. But the other part is looking back and celebrating traditionalism Mm -hmm. and actual renderings of the body. And that's something that I don't pay as much attention to as I should. And I don't know it as well as you do, and I'm not quite as well-versed. And so I'm looking forward to sinking into John Asaro a little bit and just want to ask you, why is he one of your favorite painters and in what way do you think he's important? Okay, let's not cut the line right now. Let me get a little bit of backstory on him and then I will will go into that with conviction. So (laughs) John Asaro was born uh, February 28th, 1937, and he, uh, he went to the school that I went to Many, 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 many years before I went there, but uh, he went to the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. And he also, I found out by talking to him on the phone, this is really cool that I got to talk to him, he also went to the Art Students League uh, in New York City, where I also went to school during my summers in New York City. I would go to the Art Students League. It was a place on 57th Street where you would just go and learn, and it was filled with incredible, incredible artists and students. Which is super cool because he studied under Frank Riley, who studied under Bridgman, who studied under Jerome. So it's this incredible... Progression. How of, did you know that? And Norman Rockwell studied with Bridgman. Yeah, I know because I can also use the Google. Oh, <laughs> I didn't <laughs> learn weird. that in Google. <laughs> I knew that Rockwell studied with Bridgman, and Bridgman was, uh, you know, he was he formed something called constructive anatomy. I've had Bridgman books since I was twelve years old. I mean, I've always had Bridgman books, and I studied with a guy at at Art Students League named. Gustav Rayberger, who was about as good as Michelangelo, and Gustav studied with Bridgman as well. So Bridgman had his, you know, had he was teaching many, many people. And so, yeah, you see these disciples. I'd like to think that I was a disciple in in a certain way. Uh, you know, it's like a distant cousin of Bridgman as well, because of all the teachers I study with. And you say Frank Riley. He studied with Frank Riley, and my other teacher, Mark Westermo, who has recently just passed away, was also a student of Riley. It's just, it's crazy. You know what I mean? It's a whole constellation of artists who are championing the figure and really trying to understand anatomy. Mm -hmm. And it's important to connect what Asaro was doing to what these other people taught him before. So being a student uh, at Art Students League was not really where I learned about Asaro. You know, I learned about Asaro at Art Center. I had a teacher, Gary Meyer, who was a crazy, amazing perspective teacher, still teaches uh, at Art Center. And he said, Well, you got to check out John Asaro. This is a guy doing big stuff, big stuff. So that's kind of how he spoke. And he put me on to Asaro. And as I started to learn about Asaro, uh, someone introduced me to the planes of the head. And that was it. That was a game changer right there because I got this sculpture which back then was done in ceramics, and now I think everything is plastic. But back then, I got a cast of The Planes of the Head by John Asaro that single-handedly changed my art life. And this is a ceramic head that I still have in my studio today of The Planes of the Head, so that when I was having an issue with lighting a figure, I would go to the head and I would light it from the left. I would light it from the top. I would light it from below. And it breaks down the head into an abstract form, much like Frank Riley's abstraction of the head did in a drawing way. 
This was an actual sculptural, sculptural representation of the breaking down of the planes of the head. So I was able to use it in my illustrations because as you guys know out there, some of you that are working artists or not, it's hard to get a model to sit for you. Your wife, your kid, your friend, they don't really sit still. And if they do, they probably want to get paid. But this is a great <laughs> solution to the problem of how can I get ahead figured out in terms of light side, dark side, cool light, warm light, whatever. So this head in my studio has been a staple in my art career for my entire life. And in having this head and seeing John's work, uh, I fell in love with it, but I never really understood how powerfully deep and expressive his work was until I got his book. I got his book called A Sorrow, A New Romanticism. And in that book, I saw paintings that conjure the spirits of Soroyo, John Singer Sargent, Zorn, these guys that were brilliant draftsmen of light and brilliant painters of the figure end of light. And they were the kind of painters that painted expressively with a draftsmanship that was unparalleled. They had an understanding of anatomy and of light and color and design. They were so sophisticated with their painting that they could design while they built a figure. They could design while they were doing shadow shapes in water. They could design the waves of water with paint strokes. So you're not, so it's a, it's a very, very, very high level of understanding of draftsmanship. So if you look at John Asaro's stuff, now you're taking stuff that's like, who cares, right? The average person says, who cares? It's just a woman in you know, nature. It's been done before. It's two kids on a beach. But if you look at something like Sisters 2, which he did in 1991, right? You're looking at this painting, and it's just two kids laying belly down on the water. You've got warm light casting cool shadows. But yet the directions of the ocean are so, like, he's tripping on mushrooms. It almost looks like, and I didn't want to ask him if he did drugs, because I feel like it doesn't even matter, right? He's probably like Dali. I don't do drugs. I am drugs. But there's a, such an understanding of how nature works. He's dissecting the way that light is working on sand and moving. He's figured out the rhythm of the ocean. And he's playing with color and temperature at the same time. That is so advanced. He's doing like 10 things at once on a very advanced level. It is. And when I look at this particular work, the subject is not the subject. Or outwardly, what we're looking at is not actually the point of the piece. And so outwardly, we're looking at these two little kids playing in the ocean. But in actuality, what matters is the, the rhythms, the colors, mm -hmm. the radiating auras of the water as the water surrounds and encircle uh, the little girls. And this reminds me, you mentioned John Singer Sargent, and this particular painting reminds me of Lily, or, uh, Carnation Lily Lily Rose. Mm. I think that's what it's called, something mm. like that. And it's these two little girls who are outside playing with these little uh, fireflies, and they're lighting lanterns. And do you know that one? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And so what's haunting about that is the time of day, the light, because it's that twilight time of day that is a little poignant because the natural light is about to fall. And so artificial light is needed. And if we see the day as a metaphor for life, then this is at the end of that cycle. And so there is a celebration still of the life that we have, but also a recognition that that light is going to go away. And you don't even see the little girl's faces. They're mostly in shadow, but we see flickers from the lanterns that they're lighting. And and so that to me is the subject, is how light will interplay with objects. And it's more about the mood and the environment than it is any kind of narrative story that we're being told. And that legacy I see trickled down in Asaro's work, which is beautiful that that's still maintained because there's still a space for that. And there's still a way to innovate the techniques that were established a hundred years ago. Yeah. And you, and you think about this as like, you know, from a painter's point of view, if you, you talk to a painter, they're like, oh yeah, John Asaro, he's just at another level. Right. And at the same time, oftentimes you have painters who are very technically proficient, but you're like, who cares? You know, at the end of the day, wow, you're really skillful. Who cares? What are you doing? Are you doing anything? Are you saying anything? And to me, I don't even have to ask John. I know that there's something more here. To me, yes, he's playing with temperature. Yes, he's playing with color. Yes, he's playing with design. Yes, he's playing with the anatomy of the figures and representation and breaking it down. And like you say, he's creating these auras, right? Like the the waves in this painting in particular, Sisters 2, he's creating these auras around these figures. So it kind of has this energetic, cosmic, drug-infused rhythm to it. But at the same time, there's an emotional aspect of these paintings. There's this interplay of these two girls just kind of like getting lost in the moment of just enjoying life. Like what? That says so much. And And I'm glad that you mentioned it doesn't just matter that he has the technical skill to execute because I really think that that's just the first layer of art. Mm -hmm. And really good art, art Mm -hmm. that's going to transcend is art that makes us feel. And that can be abstracted art, it can be representational, it can be non-representational. There's a whole spectrum, but his art makes you feel something. And for me, it makes me feel traces and whispers of nostalgia. And that's both nostalgia for a bygone tradition in art history, but also a nostalgia for things that I've experienced in my life. And the way that he's able to transport me back to different places or different reveries is what signals how he's different and how he's able to create these little wormholes into another world and how um, really it separates him from his peers. Yeah. And if you look at some of his other work uh, that is that are landscape, like study for Piazza San Marco in eight in 1987, you look at him and you say, wow, Monet, you know, he's, 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 really able to experience and articulate light with color. That's a hard thing to do. That's very difficult to make something feel like it's washed in light and not make it feel artificial or something's wrong. Like the brain will recognize when something is wrong. But if you look at that and you look at San Maria de la Salute and the sunrise, you could see, look at that color. And he takes the same the same image, the same thing at a different time of day, San Maria de la Salud sunset, right? The same exact subject, the same exact place, but he paints it in a different temperature. 
So all of a sudden, the cathedral or the architecture is now ensconced in cool light. So no longer is it going to be washed in the warm, sunlit, bathing in that light, but it's going to be cool, green violets. And it's just brilliant the way he's able to do that and understand it with such technical, just, it's like, it's, it's easy, but it's not too easy. The thing about Sargent, and you know, look, I have no criticism for Sargent. I'm in no place to criticize Sargent. But you hear experts, okay? You hear art historians who don't know how to fucking paint either, by the way. But you hear them say, the problem with Sargent is everything came too easy. So yet, so perhaps there was an emotional vacancy there. There was like maybe something that was hollow in his career. That's what you hear. What? Well, yeah, yeah, you do. You <laughs> That's hear that. so shocking to me just because... You hear that with Zorn too. You hear these guys were so good you can't feel the emotional pain and suffering that you do see with Rembrandt. Oh. Rembrandt is struggling. Mozart was the same way. Mozart, things came so easy, he just wrote that, that, he just wrote it out right there. It was free form. He was a virtuoso. He was, he was a prodigy in that way. Picasso, Ang, same thing. But Beethoven struggled. And perhaps what you feel is the struggle. The emotional volume of his work was bothered. And that's where you get the passion and the intensity and the hurt and the pain. With Sargent and Zorn, perhaps you feel that too. Perhaps you don't see the, the pain and the struggle like you see with a Rembrandt. But with, with a sorrow, I feel like I can see it. You know what I mean? I could feel, I could see the pain. I could feel the struggle and the suffering. I'm not saying that, you know, he wasn't a virtuoso. I think he absolutely is. You look at some of his work, it's just crazy. But Sargent and Zorn, perhaps on another level where they didn't experience that because things came too easy. I don't know. I don't even know what that means. I think that, and I'm trying to wrap my mind around it. That's so interpretive and an artist does not have to struggle to produce something that's transformative. And with every artist's career, it is going to be uneven. Some works are going to be more resonant or somehow make more of an impact than others. And sure, with John Singer Sargent, he did a ton of commissions. And so not every painting is going to be weighty and is going to change the lexicon of art. But if you think about the Boyt children this huge and stunning painting that he did of these four little girls, it's one of the most psychologically rich and complex portraits of childhood that I've ever seen. And so I don't really understand the criticism. I've never heard an art historian say that he didn't struggle and, and how that was a bad thing. To me, that's, those are two completely unrelated issues. Well, and I, 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 do, I, I do understand the criticism. And I think that I, I've seen it firsthand with artists. I've seen artists that are so virtuoso and so just so they're such prodigies at such an early age and things come so easy to them that perhaps uh, there's a fluidity and a and a virtuosity that doesn't there's there's no struggle and, and maybe pain and suffering of learning and interpreting. And you could also argue that because of that, because they have such skills uh, that they're able to articulate themselves more eloquently, easier, right, and quicker. But with somebody who doesn't have as much, you 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 feel the pain, and you definitely see it in Van Gogh's work. I mean, you see early Van Gogh's, you could see the the struggle, and he talks about it too. You know, in some of his letters to Teo, you could see the potato eaters. Uh, some of his early depictions where the colors were a little bit more 
uh, in sepia and umbers, a little bit more moody and reserved and restricted his palates, you could see the pain of trying to get better all the time. And he did. He became better and better. Obviously, he was nowhere in the stratosphere of a sergeant, uh, but how many people get to that stratosphere? Sure. No, I agree with you. I think that pain can be tremendous fodder for intellectual and expressive art, but I just don't think that the opposite is true, that if you don't struggle, you're not going to create anything valuable. And personally, I don't see struggle in a sorrow's work, and that's mm-hmm. one of my areas of interest in it. Mm-hmm. I think that it it feels like a happy, pleasant, important reverie. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because Asaro did struggle with a lot of depression, uh, especially earlier on in his life. And I think that uh, he he also made a play in the commercial art world and didn't do as well there. And, you know, I think that even in the fine art world, uh, as he experiences himself, he's having a, you know, a difficult time uh, being as successful as he should be. Because we know, we look at a guy like this, he's a master, and you're looking at a master here, okay? He's a master uh, draftsman, he's a master painter, he's a master technician. He, in his new series that I saw in Santa Monica, you know, you're looking at these giant paintings of figures that were masterful. He's playing with light, he's inverting light, he's inverting temperature, he's playing with warms and cools and blues and reds and violets and just, he's going like, he's going full tilt, right? And yet, he's not at Christie's. He's not at Sotheby's. He's not selling alongside the, you know, the contemporary art majillionaires. Gagosian's not collecting Asaro. But should he be? Absolutely. It's, John Asaro is an important artist. Uh, and who's, 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 who's saying, who's dictating this market right now? You know, I'm, I'm putting on my, my business art man hat right now. I you think know. it's because it doesn't showcase quite so obvious uh, provocations. And that is the contemporary art scene. We like mm. things that subvert other things. Mm. And I agree with you that Asaro is a significant artist and that he's utilizing traditions from the past, but putting his own creative mm. interpretations on them. But I think that a an average viewer might misread the work as easy or safe And right now we're collecting in a safe way in a certain degree because you want to buy a Picasso or a Dali, but visually. It's blue chip. They're stocks. It is, but it's not visually safe. Visually, it still seems avant-garde. Absolutely. And Asaro now has created something that has even blown my mind further. Can he blow my mind even more? I don't think so. Thanks, John. You just did it. He just (laughs) created Planes of the Body. And in Planes of the Body... It's an actual sculpture, multiple sculptures. And the one that he sent me was a dancer. And in the dancer, you could see the architecture of the anatomy in a plain way, much like he did with the head. He took the head and he breaks it down into planes. He took the body and he breaks it down into planes. So all of you students out there who don't know anything about planes or do know everything about it, it's such a brilliant tool to use. I'm telling you, there's secret weapons out there, 
And John Asaro's Planes of the Head and now Planes of the Body is a secret weapon. So please check him out and make sure that you really understand the Planes of the Head, the Planes of the Body, and know that John Asaro is doing that because he's giving us fodder, like you said, secret weapons that we can have in our back pocket so that when you don't understand how things work, you could just light it yourself and paint it. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to paint it in a logical representational way, but I think in order to disrupt a system, you have to know that system. And so these skills are integral. They're essential for every artist to master. Regardless of what the work ends up becoming, you have to know the truth of something if you're going to move past it. Yeah. John Asaro, that's J-O-H-N-A-S-A-R-O, and you got to check out his work. And he's obsessed also with dancers. He has so many dancers and ballerinas, and much like Degas was obsessed with dancers. And uh, Degas was obsessed with with many things, the theater in general. But I think I think that uh, John Asaro's understanding of the of the form is just really really beautiful, and and his handling of paint and light is ridiculous too. Have you seen any in person? Oh, you said that you yes. saw some in yeah, Santa Monica, saw, right? Yeah, I saw his show in Santa Monica, and I was struck by how huge huge the paintings were. And what about the surface texture? Because looking Beautiful. at this book, it seems like there's really thick impasto. Yes, very much so. I mean, he's really a master of oil paints and and planes, and he's able to break things down in just such a dynamic, beautiful way. And I really like his take on dancers, too, because it's like, you know, they're very reflective. You know, you look at his work, it's very reflective. His watercolors are beautiful, too. This guy is not a one-trick pony in terms of, you know, uh, media. He, he's got many mediums that he uses. It's oils. It's it's uh, watercolors. These are not easy, guys. This is not easy. What he's doing. Uh, he's one of the most sophisticated, you know, guys out there. And and you know, he's born in 1937. You know, so he's he's an important guy that's still living. That you know, we should we should look into. Yeah, you know? we should celebrate. And to wrap up, were there any other insights that? you gleaned from talking to him because that's such a cool thing to admire an artist and then have a conversation. Yes. And this is what I learned when you're at the age of John, he doesn't really deal with, uh, cell phones. (laughs) He's not on Instagram (laughs) and you know, what a weird thing, right? Like, I, I thought my mom was the only person in the world, like, who's still not, like, my mom has no Facebook, no Instagram. She barely has a cell phone. She still has an answering machine, like a normal one at the house. And John Asaro is really of that generation. And I think because of that, though, he's able to devote so much time and energy to painting. And what he said to me was like, you know, look, I was my whole life. I was painting my my kids and then I was painting my relatives. And now like that they're out of the house. He doesn't have that kind of subject matter anymore, you know. So he's very much a creature of his environment. And he doesn't really use digital. He's just starting. I kind of try to get him a little bit on procreate and photoshop he's just starting to use it and i'm kind of interested to see how that's going to influence his work you know much like look man if if michelangelo was around today michelangelo would be using photoshop he'd be using procreate you know he just just another tool he used scaffolding that was scaffolding he used the cartoon you know he gridded everything out There's not, you know they would do that vermeer would use illustrator you know what i mean they just would (laughs) and I just find it fascinating that he didn't. I think that that's probably why he's as, you know, prolific as he is. 
because he didn't get caught up in the digital age. You know, but a lot of these people who are from that generation, you know, feel like they've been left behind and forgotten. But, you know, he's not forgotten. You know, he's really he's he's known by a lot of important painters. And when I talked to him, I talked about a lot of the teachers that I had that he knew. Harry Carmian being one of the greatest draftsmen of all times, who was my teacher at Art Center, Bern Hogarth. Laurie Madden, wonderful draftsman who's still teaching. Uh, Vern Wilson, my old teacher. Uh, who who was also the teacher of Steve Houston, who's still teaching today. There's a lot of these people that, like we talked about initially, that were important people that are that are this that were ancestors of ancestors. You know, who are doing important stuff. You know, they're they're constellations, like you said. And Asaro is part of this constellation. He's an important star that, to me, still shines brightly today. Love you, John. And I, even if you don't love me, I don't care. God I still love you. Peace.